Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. For whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, as Jez started with those, you know, questions into the Google search machine and seeing how the autofill works out, I I think my question would be, uh, particularly this morning, why is forgiveness so hard? Why is forgiveness so hard? Sometimes it can be hard to receive. It's certainly hard to show, isn't it? I mean, think about this past week. How many people, what incidents have happened in your life where you've had to show forgiveness sincerely um, at cost to yourself? You've wrestled with it. Maybe it's actions. Maybe it's words spoken. Maybe it's, it, it's not in the massive things, but in the small inconveniences that you've had to forgive. C.S. Lewis Um, I think we've got a PowerPoint slide with this quote on it, said, um, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's so spot on, isn't it? I mean, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is very difficult. Not only does he say we all need to be forgiven, but we also need to be forgivers. It's there simply stated in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven those who have sinned against us. There's a causality. There's a relationship and interconnectedness between being a forgiven person and being a forgiver. And so I hope this morning as we look at Luke 7 and and this extraordinary encounter 
that this woman and Simon the Pharisee have with Jesus, we will again either see for the first time or for the thousandth time the necessity and wonder of Jesus' forgiveness at work in our lives. And so quite simply, as we come to verse 36, and if you've got your Bibles open, please have a look at that verse. Um, The first point that I just want us to reflect on is forgiveness received. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So here we are again. Jesus is at another meal. We know he's with this Pharisee called Simon, who he he names uh, later in in verse 40. And and a Pharisee, just as a reminder, is someone who is part of a devout uh, Jewish religious group. And this group particularly were well known for their devotion and their care and attention to God's scriptures a high devotion to doing what God says and treasuring his word. And a few weeks ago, we looked um, in our sermon series in in this life series at the banquet that Levi hosted back in Luke chapter 5. And Levi's party, you might remember, was full of people, full of his friends, those who were deemed sinners, people that were unlikely to do God people unlikely to be around Jesus. And Levi throws this party so that they could encounter and meet Jesus. And at Levi's party, interestingly, the Pharisees were there because in those days it was a bit of an open house policy. People could sort of just come in and if there were scraps of food going and tidbits and people would help themselves and stuff. The Pharisees were on the edges looking in at Levi's party, casting judgment. Whereas here we see a different scenario, don't we? It's, the contrast is it's Simon's parties, the Pharisees and the religious types are the guests of honor here, and the poor, the marginalized, the unlikely sinners, they were the ones on the outside watching on. But notice straight away that Jesus is open to everyone. He'll dine wherever he's invited. He'll go and have a meal, whoever asks him to come. And so he'll eat with sinners, he'll eat with the religious establishment. He'll go where he's invited, and he loves meeting people on their turf, on their ground. He's the one who draws near. And isn't that an encouragement as we come to look at the scriptures today? He hasn't changed. He's the one who meets us where we are. But something happens at this meal that would have made the guests choke on their chicken kebab straight out. Look at verse 37 and 38. There's this woman in that town who lived a sinful life. She's got a reputation. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is extravagant behavior. This is shocking behavior. What is going on here? This is a woman with a reputation for sin. Probably she was a prostitute. It seems to have just trampled over all the normal manners of a Middle Eastern culture. But what does this action tell us about her? Well, firstly... One of the things is surely that she's prepared to count the cost. She's generous. Look at this lavish action. This, this perfume that's mentioned wasn't just an ordinary bottle of olive oil or something like that, you know, a sort of super drug special deal thing that she's picked up. The, the mention of an alabaster jar is very specific because in that culture it would have referred to a, a, 
a family treasure in many ways, one of the most expensive things she probably owned. It was the sort of perfume jar that would have been used on her wedding night. It was a treasure. It was worth a lot. But there was also a social cost for her, wasn't there? She was showing everyone how she felt about Jesus. It was hard to ignore. Letting her hair down to dry Jesus' feet would have brought shame on her. It would have been as shocking, as, as one commentator put it, as going topless in public. But, but there's nothing sexual or sinful going on here. She, she puts herself in that vulnerable position, showing how much she cares about Jesus. This woman steps up and gives respect and courtesy and honor that actually Simon the host, as we'll see a bit later, deliberately ignored to give Jesus. Um, there's a chap called, um, if we just flick on the slides, I've, I've got a picture of him, a chap called John Anthony Press Portsmouth Football Club, Westwood. <laughs> that is his name. He's changed it. Um, he is probably one of the most recognisable football supporters in England. Um, he has over 60 Portsmouth tattoos all over his body. The club crest shaved into his um, head and PFC engraved on his teeth. Now that's dedication, isn't it? His loyalty, his passion is quite clear to see. Now, this unnamed woman doesn't go <laughs> to those crazy lengths, but in some ways she does. Her care, her devotion is on full view, isn't it? She would have been mocked by the guests, but Jesus doesn't reject her. Jesus doesn't stop her. Even though his reputation is at stake, he is happy to be identified with her, just as he is happy to be identified with you, to be identified with me. When Jesus sees us, he is not embarrassed. He welcomes us. He doesn't keep his distance. She's thoughtful. She's planned what she's going to do. She's found out where Jesus is going to be that evening. We're told that in verse 37. And she has taken her finest perfume. She's got a plan. She wants to show this love. And she's not just pouring out perfume, but her heart. What she's doing means something to her. She weeps. It's not just a few tears. In the Greek, the word used there describes rain showers. This is, this is weeping that really is tears, abundant tears. And Jesus accepts her actions with gratitude and with gen as genuine. He sees them as loving. He doesn't see them as something erotic, as other people would be writing off, but as gratitude. So what does this tell us about why she did it? The parable Jesus tells in verses 41 to 42 makes this clear. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? Her, her debt had been cancelled. Her debt had been forgiven. She is the person with the big debt, 500 denarii. You see in a footnote in your Bibles that a denarius was, was a daily wage. If you think of uh, 500 days worth of salary for yourselves, over a year's worth of work, that that debt would be significant, wouldn't it? If someone said, that's what you owe and I'm writing it off. Even, say, just under two months' salary, that's still a sizable debt, 50 days' worth of work, to have that written off. She's the person with the big debt. It's simple. If someone forgives you a lot, you'll love them a lot. That's the point of the parable. 
If someone forgives you a lot, you'll love them a lot. Um, there's a scholar called Ibn al-Taib. He's from the 11th century, Arab scholar, working in Baghdad. And he commented on this parable. There is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of the Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to thank Christ. Did you see the order? There's a transformation that's taken place. And she comes with a plan to say thank you. She wasn't trying to buy Jesus' forgiveness in this action. This devotion was a sign of her thanks, of the forgiveness already received. And verses 47 and 48, um, in those verses where Jesus says, you did not, um, to Simon, he says, she has poured perfume on my feet, therefore... I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus uses there the perfect tense, have already been forgiven. They're done. They're gone. Jesus declares something that is already a reality, a forgiveness and salvation from sin that she couldn't earn. This action, therefore, was a response to being forgiven. Get that clear. It wasn't the cause of forgiveness. Now that challenges us, doesn't it? The way we tend to forgive people. We're, we're more likely to forgive only when they say sorry and when they really, really mean it. Show me you're sorry. Uh, there's a scene in the film, The Mission. Um, and I think, again, we've got a PowerPoint picture with uh, the character played by Robert De Niro, Rodrigo M Mendoza. And he's a slave trader. He comes face to face with the chief elder of the tribe, which Mendoza has been uh, human trafficking from, kidnapping women and children and selling them into slavery. And Mendoza made this long and difficult journey to where the tribe live with a Jesuit missionary priest called Father Gabriel. And, and the difference was that on that journey, Mendoza drags this net filled with armor, a huge weight that threatens to kill him at various points on the journey. And this burden is, very visually, his penance. And eventually he drags himself on his knees to the chief elder, and a tribesman runs over with a knife, which the chieftain uses, and then he puts the knife right to Mendoza's throat. And, and, and the, the climax is, well, what's he going to cut? He's going to slice the throat or the rope? And the chieftain orders the rope to be cut, and this enormous burden falls off Mendoza and is thrown into the river. And Mendoza is overwhelmed with tears, which turn to joy at that forgiveness. And he's clearly, clearly earned the forgiveness of the tribe's people. But here in this encounter with Jesus, that woman couldn't pay the debt she owed. The, the, the short parable Jesus told shows her debt could never be paid off. Verse 42, neither of them, whether it was 500 denarii over a year's worth of salary, whether it was 50 denarii, just under two months' salary, neither of them could pay the money back. There was nothing she could do to get right with God. This woman knew she'd lived a life of rejecting God. Her reputation spoke of that, but she also trusted Jesus was the person who could forgive her, who could restore her, who could take that away. He was the saviour she needed. 
And notice that Jesus doesn't ignore the sin. This is interesting. He looks straight at it, doesn't he? Verse 47. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. You see, Jesus doesn't airbrush wrongdoing. Again, C.S. Lewis put it superbly when he said, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin. The sin without any excuses. After all allowances have been made for and seeing it in all its horror, the dirt, the meanness, the maliceness. Jesus sees all of us. He knows all of us. He is the God to whom our sin is directed. It's an offense against him. It offends him. And yet he doesn't push this woman away or remove himself. Instead, he declares the gift. We see Jesus doing that clearly. Her many sins have been forgiven. Our many sins are forgiven. You see, before Jesus, our hearts, our attitudes, our motives, our actions, our words are exposed. They're seen. It's painful. And yet he doesn't reject those who turn to him for forgiveness. Uh, Jesus' forgiveness means he looks at us, looks at you and me. He looks at our sin, the deliberate fault, after all the excuses, and says, yes, you've done wrong. This, this thing, this word, this action, these things together, they're wrong. But by bringing it to me, by saying sorry, forgiveness is more powerful. It's covered. Trust me, I'll never hold it against you. We are reconciled. That's the way Jesus speaks and promises to those who go to him for his forgiveness. And in verse 50, Jesus declares, the woman is saved from punishment of her sin. By faith, trusting him, she can live in peace with God. She's no longer an enemy, but a daughter in his family. Again, this picks up something we saw back in the letter to Hebrews the Hebrew Christians. In chapter 5, verse 2 of Hebrews, there's a picture of the high priest, the human high priest, who is one who can deal gently with those who are ignorant and and awayward. And it's a how much more argument. If that's going on with a human high priest, how much more with Jesus, who is the perfect great high priest? He deals gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their offences. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your heart, that Jesus deals gently with the wayward, of which we are wayward people? His tenderness doesn't depend on the severity of our sin, but whether we come to him. He is tender, he's gentle. And you see, that is a party-stopping gift, isn't it? Just as Levi found out, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, as Jesus said, and I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's that gift of forgiveness we can have from God today. Our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so again, do we want that peace? Will we be recipients of forgiveness? Forgiveness received, taken hold of, changing our hearts, releasing us from the burden of debt and judgment of the judgment of God, and that turned to his loving embrace and smile in Jesus Christ. And that's why we do need to look seriously at the other reaction to forgiveness. And that's forgiveness rejected. 
That comes out very clearly in these verses 39 to 46 here with Simon the Pharisee, who is a fascinating chap. He's curious about Jesus. He's thrown another party to bring him in, to have a chat with him, to see what's going on. Is he a prophet? Is he to be trusted? Is he a dangerous liar? Is he a showman? What's going on here? Simon comes with questions, and his thoughts also show his intentions. In verse 39, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman is touching him. Simon was waiting to see if Jesus would pass his test. She's here, let's see what he does. But interestingly, he's the one under the spotlight. Simon is under the spotlight. Verses 40 to 43, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable again. And he's, he's telling the parable to Simon, teaching him. And yet the woman's the recipient as well, and the crowd listening in. But Simon, I've got a word for you. Where are you in this? And Simon clearly understands the parable, doesn't he? The, the person with the biggest debt is bound to be more loving and grateful. He answers correctly, he passes with flying colours, or has he? Jesus doesn't let Simon off the hook. He loves him too much just to leave it there, you see. This is the pursuit of the gentle one. I'm going after you. I really want to make sure you know, you you understand this. Jesus is uncomfortable. He is challenging because our salvation is at stake. And what had Simon lost sight of? Again, that both debtors couldn't pay their debt. Both debtors needed grace. Neither deserved it. Both people needed to be forgiven, but only one can see it in that party. And Jesus forces Simon there, in verses 44 to 47, in his response, to understand what's going on. He makes him look at the woman and forces Simon to see himself as a debtor. Someone who needs forgiveness. Someone who actually doesn't really know the love of God, even though he could probably quote a whole bunch of Old Testament scripture about God's love. And Simon's lack of hospitality, what comes out as Jesus uh, convicts him of what he hadn't done in, in verses 44 to 46, that lack of hospitality to Jesus, not washing his hands and feet, not greeting and anointing him, was a calculated public insult in that day, in that culture. It wasn't just a, oh, I forgot, I was too busy getting the crisps and hummus ready. No, it, it, it was calculated. It was a power play. It was putting him in his place. And that unnamed woman exposes Simon's failures and the hardness of his heart through her costly love. She, ironically, is the host, even though she's not a guest, but a gatecrasher. Simon's behavior shows he, he doesn't need Jesus. And at that point, Jesus would have been entitled to storm out, make a scene. You've, you've, you've shamed me. You've insulted me. But he doesn't, does he? Look at that gentle approach again. He just takes it. He stays at the meal. He bears the insult. He wants to give Simon a chance to hear his good news. And Jesus' kingdom is open not only to the woman, but to Simon as well. Don't lose that fact. His kingdom is open to both of them. Both of them, Simon and the woman, along with all the guests there, need Jesus' forgiveness. But only one of them knows that and feels it. 
that we can see in this encounter. And the sad thing is, Simon understood the parable on one level, but in the most important way, has totally missed the point, because he couldn't apply it to himself. And that is a warning note to us here, gathered today. It's great that you're here. It's great that your hearts and minds are open. It's great that you're taking time to, to come together, to, to listen to this, to even consider having a Bible open and taking this on board. But it is uncomfortable. Because Jesus is saying, do you really get the point? Do you really get me? This forgiveness stuff is life-changing. It counts for eternity. And you know, by nature, we're all in the same boat as Simon. It's one of the painful things to, to understand if we're thinking, oh, I know a person actually who should really hear this, needs to read this parable. We're just like Simon. Instinctively, we think we don't have much to be forgiven for. We see it when we're in conflict with someone. We can list the faults easily on their side, but we're blind to them on ourselves. And if they point stuff out to us, we're shocked about what we've done wrong. We can always find other people to compare ourselves to, to make us look better. God, at least I'm not like that colleague or, or, or that relative or that person down the street. Rosario um, Butterfield, a, a, an author and former professor at Syracuse Uni who taught sociology and queer theory, she, she writes in her book, um, looking at the heart and looking at how people change. She describes the Simon complex we suffer like this. Pride is the root of all sin. Pride puffs up one, uh, puffs one up with a sense, uh, a false sense of independence. Proud people always feel they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want to. You see, this is the root issue. This needs forgiveness. And ultimately, pride is the reason we find it hard to forgive others. As, as the theologian N.T. Wright put, our problem is that we see ourselves as merely ordinary sinners. But we see others as extreme sinners. They owe us. They have to show me that they're, they're sorry and really mean it. That feeling of entitlement hardens our hearts. It kills forgiveness. That pride can look very respectable as well. It can sound very well-meaning, quite quiet, quite passive. It doesn't have to be loud and angry and arrogant, but essentially... Both forms are saying, it's my way. It's on my terms. And that's the sin against God, our creator. That's the sin we perpetrate against others. We're all in debt to him. And I appreciate that is a deeply disturbing message. It can sound harsh. It's like a fire alarm telling us to act. And what's more disturbing is that it's really easy just to dismiss it as a false alarm. We're left not knowing what happens to this unhospitable host, are we? It just moves on. We're left with a cliff, cliffhanger. Simon fades away, perhaps convinced that his debt isn't really a problem after all. He loves little because he sees no need for Jesus' forgiveness. At that point, we should also feel the sting of the encounter again. What about us? What about you? Where are you resisting the need for Jesus' forgiveness? 
please, please don't be a Simon here. There is a way to be forgiven. And that's where we just conclude today, is forgiveness offered. If we see forgiveness received, forgiveness rejected, there's forgiveness offered. The novelist Sir Kingsley Amos gave an interview in the Daily Telegraph in the last week of his life, and he wasn't a Christian. But this is what he said. One of Christianity's great advantages is that it offers an explanation for sin. I haven't got one. Christianity's got one enormous thing right, original sin. For one of the great benefits of organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins, which must be a wonderful thing. Then the interviewer said, he, he paused for a long time, um, Amos sort of bowed his head low, he was obviously thinking about this. Then Amos went on and said, I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There is nobody there to forgive them. What terrifying words. There's nobody there to forgive my sin. What we're looking at today says, yes, there is. The one who truly matters. The whole point of Jesus' mission was to be the forgiver. The cosmic son who, leaving heaven for earth, his perfect life, lived lovingly, willingly, laid down on the cross, bearing our sin, taking hell for us so that we could have forgiveness from God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Life with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. That costly love drove him to give his life. He was the perfume poured out to cleanse us forever of our sin. This is what we see in Luke's account. This is where it's driving towards. And Jez will look at the passage next week on the crucifixion, where we see a criminal being executed next to Jesus in Luke 24, who has a life-transforming moment at one of the worst points in his life as he's dying. A moment of life-changing clarity. A radical change of heart. And it centers on this issue of his sin. He sees how much his debt of sin is. He, he says to the other criminal, mocking and sniding Jesus, don't you fear God? We're, we're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. He sees the weight of his sin quite clearly. He can't run away from it. But he also sees the absolute righteousness and innocence of the one dying in the middle of them. But he also sees that the one dying there in the middle is one who has a solution, who's the answer to his problem. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a phenomenal promise. This criminal's forgiveness is secure because Jesus is the perfect saviour, willing to take his place, take his punishment that he and us deserved. And that promise of forgiveness extends to us today. And it changes everything. To receive that offer changes who we are, changes how we live. It will transform unforgiving hearts into grateful hearts. The gratitude will follow. It will unleash a deeper love that God's Spirit will use to spill out and work through the relationships we have in life. Forgiveness exercised and applied in all the small ways in everyday life. Ongoing choices of hurt and disappointment that we need to let go of, that we can forgive, that we can direct restoration and reconciliation forgiveness to others. 
This will all be a work that God does through us, through his forgiveness. You see, the love of a forgiven heart is powerful in Jesus' hands. And just as we end, I just wanted to mention this uh, phenomenal woman called Rachel Den Hollander. Um, she's, uh, she was a former Michigan State Uni gymnast. She's now a lawyer. And she spoke in court in January 2018 at the sentencing of Dr. Larry Nazar, an athletic trainer, a therapist, who had systematically sexually abused uh, women athletes that he was training for many years. And Rachel was the first woman of 265 to come forward and publicly uh, bring these accusations um, against him. And at the sentencing, she said the following to the defendant. If you have read the Bible, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You have damaged hundreds. The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. That's what we're talking That's transformational, isn't it? That isn't cheap. <laughs> That's the redemptive power of the cross. They're prophetic and courageous words. They remind us so centrally in a courtroom, those words being spoken, that forgiveness in Christ is available to all, even the vilest of offender, which we sing in our hymns. Even the worst of perpetrators. Now there's so much more to learn and enjoy about forgiveness in Christ Jesus. It was lovely to hear Sita draw that out in her, in her story. That forgiveness, it's dealt with, it's gone. It isn't offered anywhere else in the same life-changing way. And so all I'd say as we close this morning is look seriously at this offer. Don't reject it. Perhaps you've got further questions that you want to look at. We're, we're making time for those using um, Christianity Explored, which is a course that's helped many people. We're going to host that online. That would be one good way if you wanted to look further into what this forgiveness looks like, how it works for us in Jesus Christ. But it can also just start with a very simple prayer. that says, Jesus, please forgive me of all my sin. Thank you for your love. And help me love you now and forever. Something as simple as that. So let's pray together. And let's pray that our hearts will be changed by his forgiveness. So that we can become loving forgivers. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you so much for how much you have given us in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would um, lead each of us.
to appreciate and understand and know more of your forgiveness. I pray this morning, if there's someone here who wants to take hold of that forgiveness for the first time, that, Father, you'd make it clear to them they can come. You're the saviour who draws near to us. You deal tenderly and gently with us. Thank you for that forgiving love, Father, that you show us in Jesus Christ. Change our hearts through your love. Amen.